Welcome to the February 2019 episode of the Family Tree Magazine podcast. I'm Lisa Louise Cook. This month's episode is devoted to genealogy problem solving. We're going to kick off this episode with a quick look at the events that impact your family history in This Month in Family History with the editor of Family Tree Magazine, Andrew Cook. And then we'll meet up with Dr. Deborah Abbott, who will share how cluster research can go a long way to helping you solve your genealogical challenges. In the DNA Deconstructed segment, Shannon Combs Bennett will be here to help you figure out what to do when your DNA match doesn't have an online tree. Gina Philibert Ortega returns again this month to explain how one of the genealogy websites on our best websites list can help you fill in the gaps in your ancestors' history. In our Stories from the Stacks segment, we are going to visit the International African American Museum Center for Family History. And then we'll wrap things up with a resource that's totally devoted to genealogical problem solving. As always, we have a lot to cover, so let's get to it. First up, This Month in Family History with Andrew Cook. This month in 1943, after six months of fighting, the Japanese finally surrendered the island of Guadalcanal, one of the Solomon Islands, on February 9th. The Allied victory marked a turning point in the Pacific Campaign of World War II. Along with the Battle of Midway in June 1942, the Battle of Guadalcanal set the Japanese on their back heels and hindered their further expansion. For the rest of the war, Japan was on the defensive. Life on the island during the battle had been bleak. Allied soldiers struggled in the hot and humid climate, and tropical diseases such as malaria sidelined as many as two-thirds of Allied divisions at a time. Regular Japanese bombardment kept Allied troops from feeling truly secure in the drawn-out campaign. You can request World War II service records, called Official Military Personnel Files, from the National Archives. A 1973 fire at a record center in St. Louis destroyed 75-80% of Army and Air Force personnel records. But you can still find World War II Army enlistment records online at the National Archives Access to Archival Databases, aad.archives.gov. theme this month is genealogy problem solving. And today I've invited Deborah A. Abbott, PhD, to the show to talk about a powerful research technique. It's called cluster research. Now, Dr. Abbott is a professional genealogist specializing in genealogical methodology, manuscript collections, and African-American family research. She and I have crossed paths many times throughout our career, and I know her as Debbie. Welcome to the show, Debbie. Thank you. I'm glad to be here. I'm so glad to have you here. I don't know that we've really dug into this topic here on the Family Tree Magazine podcast, but it's a wonderful technique. Tell everybody kind of what's the big picture view. What is cluster research? Well, for me, cluster research is a way to break down brick walls. Uh, A lot of times we hear people saying, I can't find my ancestors or I can't find somebody that's close to us. And I think it's because we make a decision unconsciously most of the time that we just need to do a straight research, just a straight linear line research, mm-hmm. all this, all our direct descendants. But I equate this as driving a car. And as you drive your car 
and you see a detour sign and you don't pay it much attention because you've decided you've gone that route so many times that you'll just go the normal way and then you hit a brick wall and you have to come back. And so sometimes you have to use the people who surround your family to find the person that you want. And so that has helped me break down many, many brick walls is by looking at the friends and the neighbors and and all of the other relationships. And I guess I call it cluster genealogy. Um, Elizabeth Show Mills calls it the fan club. Basically the same, and that we're looking at other people other than our direct line. Yeah, that's a great way to put it. And no matter what you call it, it, it sure is a powerful search tool. In fact, I was just it's helping powerful. somebody. Um, I was helping her identify a photo. We figured out what the location was. And it didn't appear to have anything to do with her ancestor. And so first thing I want to do is dig into her tree and see who in her cluster is that perhaps a significant location. Because... Um, People really don't live in a vacuum, do they? They are interconnected, right? They are interconnected, and we need to pay attention to that because our our families, a lot of times, if they move around, they move around in in groups or clusters. Mm. And, for example, at least with African-American research, you want to know, as I call them, who the major players are in the town where they live. Because if it's the storekeeper, the storekeeper might have a journal somewhere, might have an account book. And even though it is an account book under the name of the storekeeper, inside of that account book might be all kinds of information about your ancestors. And that's the beauty of it, right? I mean, that that, that somebody else could have the record that the guy you're searching doesn't have his own record. that you're searching for. Absolutely. Absolutely. And so I've had to use it in, in so many cases. I've, I've used it um, with my grandfather with some oral history where I'm looking at oral history that now I have no one that I can ask questions of. These are things that I've heard growing up and trying to pull together my grandfather's family when I really don't know who they are, I know them by name, but not necessarily who's the oldest child or the youngest child, Um, I don't know. And so I had to try and locate each one of those children to be able to see where my grandfather fit in that family. It wasn't easy, but I was able to do it just by looking at friends, neighbors, witnesses, my grandfather, I pulled my grandparents' marriage record. I paid attention to the witnesses, and then I researched the witnesses. And that helped me find my grandfather's sister Wow! by looking at those witnesses. Isn't that exciting? I mean, so what you're really saying is these people that just look like they're kind of sideliners, they're just, they happen to be somebody signing off, they're witnessing the death of somebody, they're at a a baptism. These people were chosen on purpose. They have significance in the lives of our ancestors. Yes, yes. And I think we have to start thinking about that because we pull records and we just look for our ancestors' name and we don't pay any other attention. We don't look at, if you pull the death 
uh, certificate. We don't pay any attention to who the informant was, mm-hmm. and that usually is somebody that is close to the person who has died. So we don't look at who the informant is. We don't pay any attention to the doctor if the doctor's name is there. We don't pay any attention to the the undertaker. We don't pay any attention to the undertaker. We don't pay any attention to the clerk mm-hmm. who has registered that document. And so for all of those people, there probably will be something that can give you information about the person who has died. It's so exciting to think that there could be so many more records than there appear to be at first glance. Debbie, when you look at a case, I mean, are you going to do this full-blown cluster research for each and every ancestor? Or is this kind of something you reserve for when you do kind of hit the end of what's available for the individual, and then you start spreading out from there? No, when I'm when I'm researching, I'm using cluster the entire time. Got it. I look at every person because here's an example. When I was looking for um, some land purchases by someone, and I couldn't find the purchases, I could not find the land deeds, and so what I did was search for it in the reverse. Did this person sell some land? Mm-hmm. And what I found was that they had they sold a lot of land. And, of course, in a deed, it also tells you where they got the land from or the person that they, were, they got that land from. And so as I did that search on those deeds, I paid attention to that. And pretty soon, one person's name came up three times indeed sales so who is this person who keeps selling to my person right and when i stopped researching my person to figure out who this man is who's selling all of this land i find that he turns out to be the slaveholder to my person's wife oh wow if i hadn't stopped if I hadn't stopped to see who is this person, right? who is the person who keeps selling land to my ancestor? Mm-hmm. And he turned out to be the slaveholder. And it would be so easy to just kind of write him off as, oh, he, you know, he's just a random person. They wouldn't know each yes. other necessarily. But I would think in so many of these communities people kind of stayed in smaller communities together. I mean, obviously some are in big cities, but many times, you know, it's just your, your local village. It's your local community. They knew each other really well, even if it was just in a transactional basis. Sure. And, and again, it, it helps in addition to understanding the people that are there. It also helps to understand the history of where you're researching and yeah. the social context, because that too can lead you to some different records. Well, so now I'm interested to know, because I'm sure people are thinking, oh, this is going to really expand my research. I've got a lot more yes. to keep track of. Debbie, what do you use most often to, to kind of collect all this information? Where are you recording it? Because many of these people you're researching aren't necessarily in your tree. So you may not be putting them in your tree. But how do you kind of keep all this organized as you're working through the cluster? 
sometimes what I do, well, first of all, I need to say this because I never research without pencil and paper. Never. Uh, mm-hmm. A lot of people come with their computers and they've got things on flash drives and then they have to go to the flash drive and look for information. I never come without pencil and paper, so I'm writing all the time. Hey, well, you prove it works, so (laughs) whatever works. works. So uh, any suggestions for folks to how to learn more about doing this kind of research? Any uh, resources or favorite things? I, you know, I read, I read a lot of Elizabeth Shaw Mills, of course, mm-hmm. and she's got articles and she's got a website too that, that really talks about how to use that fan club cluster genealogy. And I also use, uh, Emily Chrome's book, Unpuzzling Your Past. She's got a section in there on how to use the cluster genealogy. And I am going to write I think, for Family Tree Magazine, an article on how to use it. Oh, fantastic. There's going to be um, a couple of places where people can look, but I think that what what you really have to do is practice it and to realize that it does take a lot of time, and it might take you off the beaten track. You know, I have a lecture that I do uh, where there's a family that never appears in the census as a family unit, never. Wow. And I'm able to reconstruct them because I've used the neighbors, the aunts, the uncles, the in-laws, the uh, stepchildren, the half-sisters and brothers. I've used all of those people that allows me to reconstruct the family that I'm looking for. And that family unit never appears in the U.S. federal census. Well, that's a wonderful reminder that there's no challenge too big, too hard, as long as you're patient and detailed and uh, follow good practices. Oh, Debbie, thank you so much for joining me here on the show today. I know you've inspired a lot of people. Uh, I look forward to talking to you again soon. Thank you. Thank you. Spring is approaching, and so is the 2019 Spring Virtual Genealogy Conference. Join us March 22nd through 24th to gain a fresh take on your research, with 15 presentations ranging from DNA to technology and new solutions for breaking down brick walls. Sign up at familytreemagazine.com university. everyone, Shannon Combs Bennett here with this month's DNA Deconstructed segment on a topic I think many of you may be able to relate to. What to do when your match doesn't have a tree? Now be honest, did you just sigh or did you groan a little? This can be a huge stumbling block for many researchers, but it doesn't have to be. Just listen to these tips. Hopefully one of them will help you figure out how to work around the no tree issue. Just because they do not have a tree on the DNA site you're looking at doesn't mean they do not have a tree uploaded somewhere else. This will take a bit of detective work on your part, but your effort will be rewarded. There are several ways to do this, but you want to look online at other DNA testing sites and online tree sites for the match's name. Now their name may be a username, which many people use consistently between platforms, 
or a variation on their real name. Often a simple Google search will do the trick. Next, I would check to see if they share DNA with another match, which, which does have a tree. DNA companies offer ways to see who else you and a specific person share DNA with. Shared matches, in common with, and etc. These tools can help you determine how you are related to someone. If they share DNA with you and someone else, or even a group of someone else's, you now know who you should start your genealogy research with, especially if the matches share surnames or even better, share familial lines. It's a way of triangulating your matches. Then, when all else fails, simply ask. Sometimes matches without trees are administered by someone else. Maybe they have not linked their DNA to a tree yet, or the person doesn't know how to. Sometimes a simple email can fix the situation. Do not give up though, even if you do not hear back from someone right away. Sometimes it takes days, months, or even years before you hear a reply. All sorts of reasons can prevent someone from writing you back. I waited six years once for a reply to a tree question. I hope these tips give you ideas about what to do next when your match does not have a tree. Do not give up, dig a little deeper, and I bet you can find something. Good luck, and I'll talk to you next time. Another way to solve genealogical problems is to find sources that can fill in the gaps in your ancestors' history. In this Best Websites for Genealogy segment, I've invited Gina Philibert Ortega to the show to tell us how one of her favorite websites can do just that. Hi, Gina. Hey, Lisa. How are you today? Doing great. We are solving all kinds of genealogical problems here today on the podcast. And I know that you have a favorite website that's on our list that I would love to talk to you about, and that's Genealogy Bank. You know, I love Genealogy Bank because it's newspapers. And how lucky are we to live in this time period where we have access to digitized newspapers? I mean, gosh, I remember when I started, you would have to, you know, go and use the microfilm or use bound copies. And today I can sit in my house and I can research anything in digitized newspapers. And I'll tell you, I love them because they tell the story of everyone. You know, rich, poor, good, bad, women, men, children, it's everybody. It's, it's such a wonderful uh, resource. Exactly. And it's, it's one of the few uh, record types where it really is everybody. It's all inclusive and you don't have to have anybody famous in your family to end up in the newspaper. That's for darn sure. Um, so Genealogy Bank is a newspaper site. I know it's part of a larger newspaper online kind of resource, but this site particularly is targeted to genealogists. So what can folks expect when they get there to try to find some information to fill in those gaps? Well, you know, they can expect in the good old days when we were doing genealogy, we would just do obituaries, right? right. Because uh, Because how would you do anything else? You would have to know the date. Well, this, when you go on to Genealogy Bank, you could get obituaries, obviously, but there's so much more. I mean, some of my favorite things I've written about for the Genealogy Bank blog are things like, you know, women submitting their favorite recipes. 
and uh, people submitting letters to the editor, for example, children who are being interviewed because of some activity or who are asking questions because there were children's pages in the newspaper. There's missing husband ads in the newspaper. You got to love that, for goodness (laughs) sakes. Um, You know, it's everything. And it's it's stuff that you wouldn't expect. One of my favorite things, and I know people are going to say, what? Uh, You know, Lydia Pinkham used to, well, you still can get this, used to sell a... uh, a, a medicine, we'll say loosely, and uh, to solve women's problems, whether you were a young woman or an old woman. And she was a mastermind at uh, kind of getting the word out. And so she would use testimonials to sell her elixir, and it would include real women, and it would include their name and their address, and sometimes wow. even a sketch of them. So you know, the thing with newspapers, and I know people hate this, but you really don't need to know what you're looking for. You can just put in a name and a date and see what pops up. So that's what I love about them so much. And you bring up such an interesting point. We don't, we kind of take it for granted these days, but the truth is it's the technology that has catapulted newspapers as a source. And and it was just 20 years ago that, you know, there was no way to find much more than an obituary, at least with the obituary, you knew what day they died. So yes. you could try and go find it. But now this, the search engine ability just blows the socks right off the newspapers and means that we can pretty much find anything that's out there. Now, when you go to genealogybank.com, I see that, you know, they talk about that they have a huge obituary collection uh, it says over 327 years of U.S. newspapers, 9,000 titles in 50 states. That's an awful lot. What kinds of things should people think about? Because they're going to get here, get excited, and the faucet starts flowing. Maybe they try the, the seven-day free trial thing and, and start really getting a lot of newspaper articles. What do you caution genealogists about and to help them just kind of put everything in perspective and how to best use these sources? There's a few things, actually. And, you know, because it is so exciting, it's easy to get frustrated really quickly. Mm -hmm. And so one of the things I always tell people is take some time before you get on the site and write down all the versions of a person's name. Because you may think your ancestor was Agnes Smith, but she may have been Mrs. George Smith, depending on the time period. Mm -hmm. And so you need to write down all the versions, all the misspellings, Add, you know, initials. If it's a woman, add her husband's name and then search and go through that list. The other thing is, you know, the nice thing about Genealogy Bank is it allows you to include and exclude words. So let's say that your ancestor's last name is a verb or a a city, you know, uh, then you can exclude certain words to tighten up and focus that search. And that can be extremely important. Now, you can, and I do this often, where if I know a family never left California, I just put California. If you're using uh, or searching on a name that's very common, you can, you know, specify the, the state, and then you can even specify the newspaper to search. Now, I always tell people don't always do that. Because sometimes stories are, you know, so big that they get picked up by other newspapers. 
So that's something to consider. But what I would really suggest is take some time to plan out that search. Because if you just go on the website and you just put some stuff in, don't find anything, you're going to get frustrated. The other thing is, you know, Genealogy Bank shows you a map of the U.S. You can click on there and then you can look at what newspapers do they have and for what time period. You know, they may not have the exact newspaper you need. So you need to look and see. Now, that's going to change every month because they're constantly adding. But, you know, don't get frustrated when they don't have the newspaper you're looking for in the first place. That's a very good point. Can they look at that map uh, without yet subscribing so they can kind of see what's available? Absolutely. So they just go to the homepage and you can look at the search by state and you can see that. You know, the other thing, Lisa, I think that's important to say is if you're having trouble, and this is true with a lot of websites, call them up. Say, look, I'm looking for this and this is where it should have happened and I can't find it. Let them help you search. You know, and that's one of the few, this is one of the few websites where you actually see that phone number right there at the bottom of the screen. It says, call us, which is awesome. It does. And and they do that. They are willing to do that. And if you're at a conference, then you can go to their booth and ask them there. But yeah, don't get frustrated. You know, have them help you. They want to help you. Now, once they find an article, um, they can download this. Tell us a little bit about how they can gather it and keep it. So Genealogy Bank recently made some changes to their website, and they're really exciting changes. They actually allow you to save your search so you can come back to it and run it again. They allow you to save things in a folder on the website, and I often do that when it's a a newspaper article I'm not really sure is about my ancestor. So I just kind of save it on the website there so I can come back to it. You can download articles as PDFs or JPEGs, and so you have that option to download it to your computer. I will caution you, just like any other website, uh, if you're planning on publishing, you might want to talk to them first because there's going to be copyright and publishing right issues, but you can either save it in your folder on the website or you can save it on your computer. That's a great point, and I think what you know they're all good tips. I think one of the things I would probably emphasize the most would be that starting with that plan. You know, it's it's so easy yes. when you get excited, isn't it, to just jump in. But doing a little bit of pre-planning and making the list that you were talking about, that not only saves a bunch of time, but I think we just have more success more quickly. I think so, too. And it's easy to get frustrated. And I know with one of the people I'm researching, it's it's a woman who was married several times. Uh, she used, you know, she used a different name every about 10 years. And when I don't go through that practice of searching every variation, I come up short. Mm-hmm. And it's when I say, okay, let's slow down, let's look at the plan. And then I go back and I do the search again is when I'm successful. Well, I know you are a very successful genealogist. We so appreciate you coming and sharing your tips to help everybody listening to be more successful with newspapers and filling in the the gaps in our ancestors' history. You can check out Genealogy Bank at genealogybank.com. And as Gina says, there's even a phone number at the bottom of the homepage if you need help. Always great to talk to you, Gina. Thank you so much for all your great tips. Thanks so much, Lisa.
It's time for the Stories from the Stack segment. Today we're going to visit the International African American Museum Center for Family History. Here to tell us more about it is the director, Tony Carrier, and Robin Foster, who will be the coordinator of genealogy education. Hi, ladies. Hello. Hello. So happy to have you here. Welcome to the show. Tony, I would love to start with you um, okay. because folks may not know that this is out there, that it's coming, and you have so much going on in a nutshell. Tell us, what is the Center for Family History, International African American Museum, and what was the motivation in starting this Center for Family History? Well, the Center for Family History is the research center at the International African American Museum that is currently under development in Charleston, South Carolina. And the museum is slated to open in 2021, but the Center for Family History's website is live. And we launched the website in July of 2018. You can find us on cfh.iaamuseum.org cfh.iaamuseum.org. And Robin and I have actually been doing this work in the Low Country for about 15 years now. And so we were very excited to see the, the new museum coming online. And uh, we were very excited to be invited to serve on advisory committees. And our work with them just sort of grew out of that. And you know, now we're part of the museum and we love it. It's so exciting. And of course, we've seen you and your work online and on social media. And um, it's just tremendous to kind of see it come together virtually online, and then to know that it's going to come together in a physical location as well. Tony, give us kind of an overview. The The website, as you said, is up and running. And it's beautiful. Congratulations. It's, it's just Thank wonderful. <laughs> oh, I love the layout. Um, give us an overview of the types of records that people will find there. I know I see digital library up there in the main menu. What can they expect when they go to the website? Sure. And and before we go through the digital collections, I'd just like to add that Robin uh, writes a family history research blog on the CFH website. And we have posted 82 of her tutorials to date. And another one will go up this week, number 83. So not only will you find the digitized records on the website, but you'll find lots and lots of tutorials for how to use those records to benefit your genealogy research. So I'll just give you a little bit of an overview of our digital collections. Um, we have several digital collections. What we do is we gather original historical documents and we digitize them for our website. So we collect ancestor photos, marriage records, death records, funeral programs, Bible records, and Bible records. I'd like to say that we are really proud of our Bible record collecting project because we have something to give back, and that is anyone who will be so kind as to photograph or scan the first few pages of their family Bible with the Bible records, we will send them an archival-grade acid-free Bible storage box with archival-grade acid-free tissue paper to help them keep that Bible preserved for generations to come. Oh, that's tremendous. 
Yes, we absolutely love it. And we've had quite a few people take us up on it so far. And uh, we're always delighted to, to receive Bible records. Also, we collect marriage records, death records, funeral programs. Um, we have a section for records of free people of color. And we also collect USCT pension files. And I have to give a little shout here because additionally, we have an incredible volunteer named Alana Thevenet, and she indexes pre-1870 records for the website, such as Freedmen's Bureau records, Union Citizen Files, and other Reconstruction Era records. And you can find her archive under Digital Collections and scroll down to Alana's archive. And every month we add a new round of transcriptions that Alana has done. So we'll have another batch going up probably in the next couple of days. And she also abstracts all the USCT pension files for posting on the website. So she's amazing and we just want to send her some love and gratitude. Yeah, it's amazing the volunteers that are in the genealogy community (laughs) and how wonderful to have someone like that devoted to that kind of work. And before I move on to Robin, I, I want to ask you, Tony, uh, some mm-hmm. folks might be listening thinking, well, so is this just applicable to South Carolina? Or would they be interested in what I find records across the country? Right. We uh, specialize in South Carolina because we've been doing work here for so long. Mm-hmm. But we are actually uh, international in scope. So we, we, we collect records for anywhere in the United States and anywhere else, <laughs> indeed, you know, uh, just like Family Search, we, we have an international point of view when, when collecting records. So, and Robin can tell you a bit more about contributing records. Yes, Robin, I know that folks are listening. They're thinking, well, I've got some of that. I have a family Bible and I love the sound of, of getting the archival box and, and maybe they have other types of records that are just nowhere else to be found and what a treasure they would be for you. How could somebody listening or who visits your website contribute their family's historical documents? Okay, just like, for example, CESC pension files. Anybody who wishes to donate a paper file can contact us for further details or mail the file to the museum's address. We're willing to help uh, copy the file, and then return it to the original sender. Boy, that's terrific. Now, is there uh, any kind of form or anything they have to fill out on your website? Is there any, you know, procedure to follow? Yes. Um, Tony can tell you a little bit more about the, for the form on the site. Sure. sure. Um, we have a contribute documents form. And if you look at digital collections on our website, And then scroll down to the bottom, you'll see Contribute Photos or Documents. And when you go over to that page to contribute, there's a form for each type of record that we collect. So you can just fill out the appropriate form. For instance, for ancestor photos or funeral programs, marriage records, we provide a text box there as well where we just say, please include as little or as much text as you would like to tell us something about this ancestor. So it's also an opportunity to contribute and archive an ancestor's story along with the records that they are submitting. Oh, that's terrific. And I see it here on your site under Digital Collections. Robin, I imagine that in the African-American community where you go back in time and then you start hitting brick walls where we're not getting 
the um, official documents, if you will, I imagine it's just so important to kind of mine the history of each individual family that everybody has a little piece of history that might be very unique and so valuable to the overall uh, research community. Is that the yes. kind of the impetus behind, you know, really encouraging the donations? We do, we want donations. The main thing is if they are able to get any kind of oral history, even though they think that some of it might be wrong, it's helpful. Yeah. Plus, you want to you don't want to jump back. You want to get everything you can possibly find before you get back there so you can have, you know, something to go on. Mhm. Absolutely. I'd love to hear what is one of your uh favorite personal collections that you have there. Well, um I I like the favorite is USCT Penton files even though we don't have all of them now, because it gives a wide span of what was going on with the ancestor during slavery and after. And it could be up to 70 to 200 pages. And that's really good for to think of an African-American, get that much history. Oh, yeah, I can I can only imagine. And And pulling it together, you know, it's that combination of all the official records, but like you said, with oral histories and things that just came down through the family, maybe even just written, handwritten into a family Bible. It's just so important. Yes. So again, it sounds like the physical um, location is opening up. When is that going to start, Tony? When is it opening? 2021. Oh, I bet you guys are excited. There's a lot of work to be done, I imagine, between now and then. But the we website are. is wonderful. Thank you. Thank you so much. We're looking forward to breaking ground this year and the, and we'll really be excited when that happens. I imagine. Well, I invite everybody listening to go and visit the International African American Museum and, and the Family History site online. You can find it cfh.iaamuseum.org. Tony Carrier and Robin Foster, thank you so much for joining me here on the podcast. Thank you. Thank Our you. pleasure. Well, this just in, if you are having some challenges in your family history research, there is a brand new edition of a wonderful book, and it's available at Shop Family Tree. Here to tell us all about it is the editor, Andrew Cook. Hi, Andrew. Hi, Lisa. So the book I see here, it's the Family Tree Problem Solver, which uh, I have enjoyed in the past, but you have a whole new updated edition. Tell us about this. That's right. The Family Tree Problem Solver has a ton of practical solutions for overcoming common genealogy problems, such as burned courthouse records and researching ancestors who lived before 1850 or before when civil registration began. Yeah, and those are some of the hardest ones. Now, when somebody runs into a problem, you know, they're moving along in their research, it's going swimmingly, and then they hit some challenges. What's the best way to turn to this book and get straight to what you need? So each chapter is actually organized around a central problem that a lot of people have. I mentioned burn courthouse records, for example. So that's one chapter um, working out issues in which two people share the same name. That's its own chapter. Um, finding your ancestor in a census is its own chapter. So that's how I would recommend readers approach this book. If you have a specific problem, going to that specific chapter, or if you have a more specific challenge that you're facing in your research, you can begin with chapter one, which is all about 
really examining research problems and trying to come up with practical solutions on your own to work through it systematically. Yeah, in fact, I think if you just look at the table of contents and read through these different chapters, uh, I bet some of the genealogical problems that you've kind of shelved for the time being will come to mind and you'll, and you'll be able to pull those off the shelf and take a new fresh look at them with some of these chapters that have are just chock full of ideas to kind of help you get around the problem. Um, now, you mentioned that this is it's just in, it's hot off the press. It's a new third edition. Tell us what is new in this new family tree problem solver. So this book originally came out in 2005, and as all of our listeners probably know, genealogy has changed quite a bit since then. Yeah. But a lot of the author's suggestions are timeless, and obviously a lot of these problems are also timeless. But we wanted to add a couple chapters to address some of those problems that have come up as genealogy has continued to evolve over the years. And so we have one chapter by Sonny Morton on how to decide whether or not to add record hints to your family tree on online family tree services like Ancestry.com and FamilySearch.org. And we also have a new chapter from Diane Southerd about how to apply your DNA results to your research, since that is a topic that I think a lot of researchers have questions about. Absolutely. Oh, well, see, it's, it's all up to date. It's ready to help you solve your genealogical problems. Uh, I will have a link in the show notes so that you can get your copy from Shop Family Tree. Andrew, thanks so much for telling us about the new book. Thank you, Lisa. Thanks so much for joining me for this February 2019 episode of the Family Tree Magazine podcast. It's the monthly show from America's number one genealogy magazine. I hope you're as excited as I am to try out some of the problem-solving techniques that we talked about today. I'm going to have links in the show notes to everything that we discussed. You can find the show notes at FamilyTreeMagazine.com slash podcasts. I'm Lisa Louise Cook, and I invite you to visit me at my website, GenealogyGems.com, where you can listen to my free podcast, the Genealogy Gems Podcast, which of course is also available through your favorite podcasting app, And we have a Genealogy Gems podcast app in your app store. Until next time, have fun climbing your family tree.